You're listening to the Fantasy Sports Radio Network. Ladies and gentlemen, you are now listening to the Fantasy Baseball Hour with Al Melchior. Welcome, everybody. This is the Fantasy Baseball Hour. I'm your host, Al Melker. Thank you so much for uh, listening to this uh, episode. And I apologize because I really wanted to get uh, everybody an episode out right before Thanksgiving. But due to some unforeseen circumstances, uh, it, it wasn't to be. And I was really excited because I was going to have Tanner Bell uh, on the show from uh, Smart Fantasy Baseball. And he's the co-author, along with Jeff Zimmerman, uh, of a great new book called The Process. I believe I've talked about it on the show before, uh, but if you haven't checked it out yet, do check it out. Uh, it's called The Process, uh, and it is uh, definitely must-own, must-read uh, fantasy baseball prep for the coming season, and there's a lot of good stuff in there, so the sooner uh, we all get on it, the better. So I'm going to help you out with that with uh, that today. Maybe not so much uh, strategy stuff, but uh, there has been some news. It's now been two weeks since the last show, so there's a lot to catch up on. Uh, in just the last couple of days, the Braves made a couple of signings. Josh Donaldson and Brian McCann. A uh, couple of other uh, notes in terms of player movement signings. Uh, some uh, health and injury news. So quite a bit to get to, but I'm actually going to start with news that now is a little bit old, but since uh, I didn't do the show right before Thanksgiving, uh, that uh, it, it might as well talk about now. And that is the uh, James Paxton getting dealt to the Yankees and uh, going the other way. Justice Sheffield, Eric Swanson, and Dom Thompson-Williams. Talk about the prospects a little bit too, but obviously the big news here is Paxton. And whenever there's, uh, whether it's a signing or a trade uh, of this magnitude, you know, right away we we go to well the place where we fancy owners go to, which is what's the the change in value. And I think it's pretty much of a wash. If I were to lean one way or the other, I'd say I actually think it's probably a little bit of a drop in value for Paxton because while I think that he'll be able to help out with wins, uh, perhaps even better as a member of the Yankees than as a member of the Mariners. The the change in venue is something that does worry me for him. Now, he's only thrown a total of 54 innings over his career in the five parks of the American League East uh, and only five innings at Yankee Stadium. So there's really nothing much to go on there. Uh, and 13 of those innings came at Tropicana Field, so a good chunk of those 54 innings at the friendliest of those uh, ballparks. So I'm not even going to go there with that analysis because that's just slicing and dicing up too small of a sample. But we could start with a, a very large sample of innings that Paxton has pitched as a Mariner uh, and just split it one way, home versus away. And right there, there's a little bit of a red flag because over his career at Safeco Field, James Paxton has a 2.98 ERA. Tremendous, right? Terrific. Away from Safeco Field, not so tremendous, 3.87. And yes, pitchers, regardless of venue, tend to pitch better at home than away. But uh, this is about a doubling, I'd say even a little bit more than double, the typical home road split for a pitcher. So that's a little concerning. 
and a second concern that I have about James Paxton is just his overall performance last year. A 3.76 ERA, which, you know, again, in the American League is, is fine. Uh, and he certainly makes up for that with, uh, you know, made up for it with a lot of strikeouts. But the ERA was up a bit last year because the home runs were up a bit. 1.3 home runs per nine innings on average last year. A 41% fly ball rate, which is a little elevated for Paxton. Uh, that in 2018. So certainly he could regress back to a more normal fly ball rate uh, or ground ball to fly ball ratio, whichever way you want to look at it. Uh, and he's really, he's probably going to need to do that going to Yankee Stadium where he's going to pitch roughly half of his games. And then, you know, having to go particularly to Camden Yards and Rogers Center, although um, Fenway Park offensively is not, uh, you know, a, a, a break either. So, you know, he's got two very tough parks on the road to pitch in, uh, a very, very tough park, one of the toughest parks to pitch in for his home park. And then you throw in a fourth venue there in Fenway Park, which can be a little challenging as well. So those splits worry me, both the home road splits over his career and the splits just for 2018 in terms of the increase in ERA and and home run rate and uh, fly ball rate. So, yeah, that's why I think whatever gains he gets just in terms of run support are probably not only uh, neutralized, but maybe even overshadowed by a dramatically more challenging set of venues that he's going to have to pitch in next year. Uh, so, you know, that said, I still probably be happy to have uh, Paxton as uh, my number two starting pitcher. And maybe that's the difference. Whereas maybe as a Mariner, I would view him as with a, a ceiling of a low end uh, ace in fantasy. And just for a little perspective here, uh, we've got the ongoing pitcher list mock draft going on the pitcher list uh, pitcher list experts mock. It's currently in the midst of the uh, middle of the 16th round. I'm going to be breaking down this draft a little bit more later on in the program, but in regard to relievers, because that that uh, market is getting very interesting. Uh, but Paxton went in the sixth round, the 11th pick in the sixth round, so v- almost very end of the sixth round. To Paul Sporer, uh, going right before Mike Fultonevich and right after Mike Clevenger and Jamison Tyone. So I think that does reflect a little bit of a downgrade for him. And now I'm trying to think, I'm almost positive that that portion of the draft occurred after the trade. Uh, but this is a slow draft, so it's been going on for a while. But I, I think that's fair. I, I certainly, I would. I, I think it's pretty much of a toss-up, I think, between Paxton and Clevenger. Clevenger going one spot earlier in this particular mock. And I definitely still prefer Paxton to Fulton Nevich. Uh, and if you go back a little bit further, like I said, Jamison Tyone. Uh, yes, in fact, I thought about taking Tyone at one point uh, when I wasn't thinking of taking Paxton. So, yes, I prefer Tyone. I prefer Patrick Corbin, Jack Flaherty. These are all pitchers that one ahead of Paxton. One pitcher I would not prefer who did go around and a half almost ahead of Paxton is Madison Bumgarner and have a little bit of a Madison Bumgarner update coming up later in the show just to tease that. Let's talk a little bit about the prospects going the other way. The biggest name is Justice Sheffield. 
Uh, I'm not sure he's necessarily the biggest get um, here because uh, he was, you know, certainly solid last season with Triple uh, A Scranton Wilkes Bar, but just a 24% strikeout rate. So nothing that's really going to turn your head. A 12% swinging strike rate, which again, good. Uh, nothing really to complain about there. Uh, and it's certainly that's going to translate much, much better at Safeco Field than it would have at Yankee Stadium. So Swanson, or, uh, sorry, not uh, uh, not Swanson. We're going to get to Swanson. Sheffield definitely gets a boost going the other way. But Swanson's intriguing too. Uh, he split the year between Trenton and scranton Wilkes Bar. 24-year-old uh, pitching prospect. Had a 0.42 ERA at Trenton and uh, a 3.86 ERA at uh, Scranton and a higher strikeout rate at AAA than Sheffield Hill, 29%, uh, a 35% ground ball rate. So, yes, he definitely needs that change of venue as well, uh, Eric Swanson. And then the third player involved was Dom Thompson-Williams, outfield prospect, who and in the Florida State League at Tampa batted 290 with uh, 17 homers and 17 steals and a 25% strikeout rate. So while that's a little bit elevated, the other numbers are pretty nice. Pretty nice for the Florida State League. So uh, not a big-time prospect, sort of projected as a fourth outfielder type, but with some upside and some power speed potential. So he's certainly one to uh, take a look at in Dynasty Leagues. So, uh, But the what, certainly the one that you can count on to have some sort of impact this year would be Justice Sheffield, to be sure. Uh, another uh, bit of news from a little over a week ago, or actually I think it's now exactly a week ago, but we would have talked about it on a show last week if I did a show last week, is the retirement of Adrian Beltre, who had a fantastic and what I would assume to be Hall of Fame career, batted 286, had 3,166 hits total, 477 home runs. And the thing that, even before retirement, that I had come to associate Beltre with was really a, a trajectory in which he got better in the second half of his career. And not that the first half of his career was bad, although there were periods where I do recall that he was viewed as sort of a bust because he came with a lot of prospect hype and had had some some disappointing seasons, but very, very consistent in his 30s. Uh, from 2010 on, and that was his age 31 season in 2010, uh, spent almost uh, entirely with the Rangers, uh, though he had the season with the Red Sox in there as well. Uh, from age 31 forward, a 307 batting average, and got 1,466 of his hits from age 31 forward, as well as 227 of his home runs. So great production in the latter portion uh, of his career. Now, according to uh, T.R. Sullivan of MLB.com, the Rangers expect that Jerkson Profar is just going to slide right in and become the regular third baseman. Profar, a bit of a super utility role, in 2018, but uh, expected to see steady playing time at third base next year. And actually, I will go right back again to that pitcherless mock that I talked about uh, just a few minutes ago, because we are, as I said, in the 16th round. I had the second pick in the 16th round, and I took Jerks and Profar. Now, that had nothing to do with this revelation 
that I was going to play regularly at third base because I figured Profar was just going to play regularly this year no matter what, whether it was across multiple positions or at one position. But for most of last season, I really sort of poo-pooed the growing hype around Profar uh, that you know this was finally the year where he was healthy and he was making good on his potential. But he did pick up the pace a bit in the latter half of the season and in particular hit with more power and wound up being a pretty impressive season in 2018 for jerks and profar. He batted 254, and I'll get to that in a second, but 20 homers and 10 steals uh, for him. And that the batting average, I mean, he, he didn't strike out a whole lot. I think the rate was right around 13%, but batting just 254, despite a lack of strikeouts and some good home run power, yeah, 269 Babbitt rate that there's really nothing to support it. Nothing in his profile. And his expected Babbitt was an on-the-nose normal 300. And you look at a profile's profile. That's fun. The profile, profile profile. And he looks like a normal Babbitt pinner, hitter. So there's certainly some upside there in terms of batting average for jerks and profile. And again, potential speed power combination. Now he just stole 10 bases last year, but he didn't get thrown out once. So I have to wonder if maybe there's a little bit of upside there. Maybe he can steal 15 bases. I'm not going to project that, but uh, you know, he, he could provide a little bit of help with steals and uh, the, the power emerged, particularly in the second half last year for Profar. So I am for one, very happy with him as a 16th round pick in this mock. And if he comes that cheaply in real drafts, I could have a lot of jerks in Profar next year. So that's good to know. And there is some position flexibility with him as well. So, all right, let's get to some newer news items. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Braves with a couple of signings, both one-year deals. Josh Donaldson uh, getting signed for $23 million. Brian McCann for just $2 million. McCann, you figure he's going to go into a pretty even split with Tyler Flowers, just basically filling the void left by uh, Kurt Suzuki, who's now Washington National. Uh, But Donaldson, so he'll uh, go right in and and be the uh, everyday third baseman for the Braves. And so the question, well, two questions on everybody's mind. One is uh, how how good of a gamble is this for the Braves, signing Donaldson to this one-year deal? But also... What about Johan Camargo, who had a pretty nice little breakout season playing pretty regularly at third base for the Braves? Uh, so the plan for him is to become a super utility player. And he certainly does have the the uh, defensive skills and, and uh, versatility to fill that role. So it's, it's pretty much good news all the way around. And I, I suppose if there's anybody maybe who pays a price here where it's not such good news, maybe it's Dansby Swanson, who perhaps gets a little bit less of a chance to play every day and and see if he can you know, develop into the type of, of player uh, that uh, the Braves are certainly hoping he would be when they traded for him or uh, you know when the Diamondbacks <laughs> drafted him first overall. Uh, so I'm not sure how much that's really going to affect Swanson because it's really hard to see, for example, Ozzie Albies getting that much time off. Maybe it's going to be a, a day here and there to keep Donaldson fresh and healthy. Certainly a little bit of time in the outfield, I would think, uh, for Camargo. So it's not totally clear how he's going to uh, 
accumulate regular playing time. But that that's the plan. That's the Braves' uh, reported plan for uh, Camargo. But uh, as far as Donaldson's concerned, coming off a season where he just uh, accumulated 219 plate appearances, so injuries really taking their toll on him, uh, both in terms of playing time and in, in terms of production. He hit just 246. The power was there, although maybe not quite to the same degree that we're accustomed to. Eight home runs in those 219 plate appearances. But the thing that concerns me for Donaldson, because I don't see any big erosion of his power despite uh, dealing with injuries. Uh, for me, it's the it's the the strikeout rate because it not only was up last season, it's really it's been up two years running for him uh, up in in the uh, like lower twenty percent, which is not bad, but not uh, you know not what he did during his best seasons, not what would be ideal. So that that is actually the thing that worries me a bit. I would say that and plus just the hope that he stays healthy. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't expect that anybody is going to have to reach to get Josh Donaldson this season. I You know, there's still a lot of upside. I think the fact that there hasn't been much erosion of power is a really good sign. But obviously it's it's a risky pick. And if there's more erosion of the of the strikeout rate, then that's that's a concern. Uh, the Reds re-signed Rysel Iglesias for a uh, three-year deal, and the three-year deal is for twenty-four point one million dollars. Uh, the The rationale behind this was that uh, he was signed as an international free agent, and so given the way that his initial contract was done, he could have started arbitration as soon as this offseason. So it's a way for the Reds to have just, you know, locked him in uh, for for three years, uh, you know, not having to wor- worry about arbitration. But there's another angle to this, too, that, that's really, I think, very interesting. Uh, this coming from uh, Bobby Nightingale of the Cincinnati Inquirer, not to be confused with uh, Bob Nightingale of USA Today. Uh, but Bobby Nightingale did a piece for the Inquirer talking about how this new deal could mean maybe a change in role for Iglesias because uh, if he wasn't locked in to a three-year contract and his salary was going to be contingent perhaps upon his counting stats, i.e. saves, uh, there may have been more pressure for David Bell to keep Rysel Iglesias in that closer's role and keep him in there as just a regular traditional closer. Uh, rather than you know somebody who's platooning or uh, you know splitting time with somebody else or filling multiple roles, a la um, Andrew Miller or uh, Josh Hader, but without any sort of incentive structure for saves, whether it's in the contract itself or through the arbitration process, uh, and this Nightingale uh, column, he sort of uh, surmises that maybe David Bell is going to be a little bit more flexible in the way that he uses Iglesias. And part of that has to do with just Iglesias' history as a pitcher uh, itself, that um, he, first of all, started out as a starter. And you may remember that the plan that Brian Price had, and I believe this is now going back two years, where he wanted to use... Iglesias and Michael Lorenzen sort of interchangeably as co-closers and have them, when they were not closing, pitch multiple innings. I think on occasion, even when they were closing, pitch multiple innings. Never really panned out. But this would now free up the new manager, David Bell, 
to maybe go back to that kind of plan where maybe it's more of a Josh Hader type of role for Rysel Iglesias, where maybe one day, based on the matchups and the situation, he's in to pitch the sixth and the seventh, and another day he's in to pitch the eighth and the ninth, or maybe he's just pitching the eighth or just the ninth. Maybe he's an opener. I, you know, who knows? Uh, but so it's it's interesting for Iglesias because I think from a fantasy perspective, that probably hurts his value. Maybe, I mean, maybe the lack of saves get is compensated for because maybe he's going to pitch more innings. So it's really, it's it's really a wild card. I mean, I, I'm saying I think it's going to hurt his value, but it's it, it is hard to say. It is really hard to say. Uh, so it's definitely a situation to watch. And just if you think about this more broadly, that you've got potentially one more team here that's hopping on the bandwagon of using relievers in some innovative ways, it really gets harder and harder to know how to deal with relievers in a draft. Uh, now you've got, uh, st- you still got a handful that, you know, you- you're pretty sure what they're going to deliver. You know, Edwin Diaz is still going to be somebody to target, you know, very, very early. Um, in the, uh, the pitcher list mock, Diaz went, I want to say, I think it was the seventh round. Yes, he did go in the seventh round, last pick of the seventh round. And actually he went after Kenley Jansen. So Jansen, Diaz, Kimbrell, uh, Blake Trainin. Those guys are all going to go pretty early. Um, you know, really no no controversy there. And, you know, if, if you're set on getting them, that you have to be prepared, to, you know, to go in the seventh, maybe the sixth round, depending on, on your league and what owner's preferences are. You know, so you have to be prepared to do that. But if you don't want to go the elite route and then you want to go for kind of the next tier, uh, the Brad Hands, the Jose Leclerc's, um, those guys. There was a run in the pitcher list mock that started in the tenth round, where uh, those guys went: Leclerc, Osuna, Hand, uh, Chapman. Uh, actually, went in the tenth round. There, uh, I think he would still probably be considered by men, many to be um, part of the the top tier, but that's not really how it happened in, in this one. And by the way, Iglesias went with the first pick in the 11th round, two picks after Leclerc. So maybe if we restarted this mock, maybe um, Iglesias would go a little bit later. I, I personally would wait a little longer on Iglesias now. So if this mock is indicative, and I think it probably is roughly that you would have to be prepared to go in the 10th round or maybe even in the 8th or ninth round. Be prepared to go after one of those second-tier closers uh, because once that tier is gone, then there's just a whole lot of uncertainty. You've got guys with really good skill sets who won't even necessarily close uh, or maybe part of a tandem. So you're talking about uh, maybe a Corey Knabel type uh, who, if he's an everyday closer, would uh, be very valuable, but given how Craig Council operated things this year, there's really no reason to think that Knable's going to be uh, a standard everyday type closer. Well, I mean, not literally every day, but uh, I, you know, I missed out on that run. I would have liked to have gotten Leclerc or Hand uh, or Felipe Vasquez, who also went in that round, uh, but I missed out on it. 
I took Luis Castillo with my 10th round pick. And I got to say, I don't regret it because if I had had to wait a couple more rounds to fill that, uh, I think what was my third starter slot, then, you know, I'm, I'm was missing out on some pretty good options. So I went two rounds later and got Adam Adovino, who has great skills, but may not close. Uh, you know, when I saw that the Yankees were interested, I was like, no. And I mean, this isn't a real league, so I probably shouldn't have worried about it. But, you know, if I if I had just drafted him for real, I would much rather he go to the Mets than the Yankees uh, among a couple of teams that have expressed some interest in, in Adovino. So that's what you're dealing with, perhaps, after the 10th round or so is, you know, somebody like that, uh, like Adovino or or like uh, Knievel. Um, Knievel, by the way, went in the 13th round in this draft. Sir Anthony Dominguez went in the 13th round. So it's really, really tough. Uh, and I just, you know, I guess the, the moral of the story here is that if you don't buy, let's say, the 9th or the 10th round, get somebody that looks like a very certain uh target for saves you might you may may pay to wait a while because there's just so much uncertainty and and you don't know who's going to be a closer and which teams are going to have traditional closers and and which aren't so that's gonna be something i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to figure out uh, like everybody else over the next two months gonna have to figure out what's my strategy here for going after saves and i'm very tempted maybe to punt on saves in drafts and auctions. But the thing is, I have a feeling a lot of other owners are thinking the same thing. And how does that change the calculus? So I've got a couple of months to figure this out. Anyway, speaking of closers, and I did mention Kenley Jansen already. Uh, he had uh, the heart surgery that was uh, scheduled. Uh, so that, that's been done. Uh, he did uh, an interview with MLB Network where he talked a lot about the, the details of um, – not so much the details of the surgery itself, but what it means for him going forward. He said he's uh, expecting a two-month recovery time. Uh, he said his doctor says there's a 90% chance that he's not going to experience an irregular heartbeat ever again. But he did leave that 10% chance open there. That and he talked a lot about going to Coors Field and going to Colorado. Uh, you know, and and so when when the Dodgers go there for the first time in 2019, uh, that's going to be a test to see see how Jansen responds. So, uh, but Jansen sounded extremely optimistic that he may just be done with this heartbeat issue, which, which would be great. Um, he also talked about how when he did have the issues in 2018, part of the problem was that he didn't sufficiently hydrate. And so that's going to be a key thing uh, that uh, Jansen's going to focus on this year is making sure that he is well hydrated uh, for for all the games, so uh, some very very uh, encouraging developments there uh, on Kenley Jansen from Kenley Jansen, and uh, you know I would think that he's probably a good good risk because uh, after last season, I think probably you know as a as a group we fantasy owners maybe are are a little more averse didn't didn't play out in the that way in the pitcher list mock, but maybe in some other drafts he'll drop a bit. And uh, maybe there's some some bounce back potential there for uh, for Kenley Jansen. Chris Archer also uh, just recently had surgery to repair a bilateral hernia, according to Stephen Nesbitt of the Pittsburgh Post uh, Post Gazette. The uh, recovery time for Archer is expected to be about six weeks, 
And so that should put him on schedule to be ready for um, spring training and for opening day. And if he's off, he shouldn't be off by much. So some encouraging news there on uh, on Chris Archer. Also a Pirates move, uh, sort of a minor one. Uh, they signed Lonnie Chisenhall to a one-year deal worth $2.75 million. Uh, part of the plan for Chisenhall is that he'll start the year as a full-time replacement for Gregory Polanco, who will still be recovering from shoulder surgery. But once Polanco's ready to return, uh, Chisenhall will uh, probably uh, still see some some semi-regular playing time, be a fourth outfielder type, but uh, maybe with a bit more playing time than a typical fourth, out, fourth outfielder. You uh, say Kikuchi is now scheduled to be posted on December 5th. Uh, it's a 27-year-old 20, lefty uh, from Japan. Talked about before on the show, uh, but that posting now due to happen uh, on December 5th. So that coming up very, very soon. Generally projected to be number three, number four type starter. So uh, somebody who certainly would be drafted in 12-team mixed leagues, but... Uh, the hype level here is certainly, you know, not Otani or Darvish level, uh, to be sure. The uh, Twins picked up C.J. Crone off of waivers. And just uh, prior to this time last week, Crone was DFA'd in a really kind of shocking move by the Rays. Uh, Crone DFA'd, picked up off of waivers by the Twins. Crone's role, not totally clear at this point. Uh, maybe could see... Every day or close to every day at bats, maybe split in time between first base and DH, where there are some needs. But there is still Tyler Austin there, and uh, it's not really clear how they would split time. Also not clear what other moves the Twins might make. But if Crone does play pretty regularly, there's some real potential here for this to be a good move for him. But I broke out last year, uh, or this, I never would know what to do in December. Is it last year or this year? Still this year, technically. In 2018, C.J. Crone broke out with 30 home runs, but only 11 of those were hit at the Trop. Uh, and again, one of the more pitcher-friendly parks, certainly in the AL East, but even in the AL as a whole. And he had a 16.2 home run to fly ball ratio at the Trop. Now, he had eight home runs, so 11 of his 30 home runs in Tampa Bay. Another eight in the other AL East parks. And there he had, in those four parks combined, he had a 25.8% home run to fly ball ratio. So more than 50% higher than his home run to fly ball ratio at the Trop. And target field should be an upgrade for home runs vis-a-vis Tropicana Field. Should be. Uh, this past year, for whatever reason, just because park factors are variable and a little fluky uh the part the home run park factors for righties was not as high as it had been the couple of years previously at target field so i'm you know can't it, it, that could be a climate or you know I, who knows what um but so it's hard to say if uh target field becomes that kind of park over the longer term it's really not that much of an upgrade for right-handed hitters but at least there's there's potential if you look longer term at what park factors have been there at Target Field. There's some potential for C.J. Crone to, to build on that uh, breakout that he had in, uh, in 2018. Jesse Chavez has an agreement on a two-year deal to go back to the Rangers. He started off 2018 with the Rangers, then went to the Cubs, where he just 
blew up. It was fantastic. Um, so the two-year deal, according to Jeff Passan of Yahoo Sports, is in the $8 million range. Uh, between this time with the Rangers and Cubs this past season, Chavez put up a 255 ERA, a 1.06 whip, got five wins, five saves, 92 strikeouts. Uh, that's over 95 and a third innings. So not quite a, a, a strikeout per inning, but pitched so many innings that he really wound up helping out with strikeouts. And that combination made Jesse Chavez the 22nd most valuable reliever in terms of roto value, uh, according to the ESPN player rater. So I think it's it's a bit of a long shot for Chavez. Now, even just assuming that he stays in a relief role, it's a little bit of a, a long shot to assume that he would be a top 24 reliever again in 2019. But, uh, you know, a nice skill set there. Not, uh, like I said, a, a big, big time strikeout rate pitcher. But if he racks up a lot of innings, he's got good control. Uh, last season, made some advances in terms of how many chases he got on out-of-zone pitches. You know, if he can come close to maintaining that, he should have some value one way or another. And there is the possibility that the Rangers just move him back into a uh, starting role, put him in the rotation. They certainly could use him there, uh, but it remains to be seen. So sort of like with Rysel Iglesias, uh, very intriguing situation there in terms of how the Rangers use Chavez. I mean, it's not even, I don't think he would close. There's no reason to replace Jose Leclerc as a closer, and I haven't heard anything about him being a trade chip. Um, although I think that would make some sense for the Rangers, perhaps. But it'll be interesting to see what they do with Jesse Chavez there. Both the Brewers and the Phillies are among the teams that have had some preliminary discussions with the Giants about a potential massive Bumgarner deal. That, according to John Morosi, as published on MLB.com. Now, uh, Mad Bum did have a 3.26 ERA last year. He made 21 starts, but the peripherals all really went south. He had just a 19.8% strikeout rate, a 7.8% walk rate, both very uncharacteristically uh, mediocre for Bumgarner, and a 42% hard contact rate, which is just plain not good. And, uh, you know, it'll, it'll remain to be seen. If uh, if he can rebound, I have to admit, I was surprised to see that Bumgarner is still just 29 years old. So if there's anybody who would be poised to to bounce back, it, it could be Bumgarner, you know, despite the, the injuries and, and all the innings that he's put on his arm. Uh, but anyway, so Brewers and Phillies interested in trading for him. And there have been some preliminary discussions. The Mets, according to Andy Martino of SNY.TV, Mets have been aggressive in their pursuit of Robinson Cano. I have to say that's a little bit of a head-scratcher for a team that's uh, got Jeff McNeil, but that's uh, that's the word. And Cano, would, if he did go to the Mets, he'd be going from one pitcher-friendly park to another in City Field. And Cano's numbers, other than one season, uh, in Seattle, they were certainly, as far as power goes, a notch below what they had been when he was a Yankee, but still very much somebody who can hit 290, 300 uh, and be a run producer. So it's really just the the power numbers that have uh, that have fallen for uh, Robinson Cano. And uh, finally here, 
Uh, Tigers making a move to uh, add some rotation depth. They picked up Matt Moore, uh, signed him to a one-year deal. Uh, that's somewhere, well, actually, they have not signed him. They have agreed to sign him to a one-year deal worth somewhere between 2 and $3 million, according to Jeff Passan. Uh, that is pending a physical still. Uh, but Tigers, uh, assuming that that goes through, Tigers would use Matt Moore as a starter. And granted, on the one hand, uh, you know, they, they could use the depth. They could, you know, certainly use another uh, arm in the uh, in the rotation. But Moore was considerably better out of the bullpen after he was demoted there uh, last season with the Rangers. And uh, as uh, a reliever, he tossed 46 innings. He struck out 45 batters, walked 15, which for Matt Moore is actually a pretty good ratio. But the real problem, <laughs> and it's a big one, 46 innings, he gave up 11 home runs. Now, I'd be going to a much better venue in Comerica Park. Uh, so maybe that's a good spot for him. Uh, but again, in that relief role, just allowed a 234 batting average. Uh, whereas as a starter, uh, the batting average against was well over 300. I mean, he was just miserable as a starter last year for the Rangers. So maybe the maybe the Tigers could figure something out. Again, more like uh, Bumgarner, just 29 years old. Looked like when he went to the Giants, maybe he was on the verge of, of kind of turning things around. But... Um, you know, he's going to be something, I think, of a, of a project uh, for uh, for the Tigers. But uh, anyways, that pretty much puts a, a bow on uh, all of the major moves that have happened since uh, since the last time I was here. But I will be back next week with uh, another episode, and that will be the last one before the winter meetings. And for the first time, I'll actually be attending the winter meetings. So looking forward to uh, sharing what I... Uh, what I see in here at the winter meetings, but uh, really cool that that is um, that's uh, yeah, on the, the the precipice of happening here uh, this winter meeting. So, anyways, be back next week. But uh, until then, I will uh, be back next week with all the latest. And um, have a good one, everybody. Enjoy this uh, hot stove season that's starting to get underway. Take care. <laughs>